Over the past month, news has come out that has rocked the world of behavioural science, consumer psychology and nudge theory. Francesca Gino, a top professor at Harvard University, one of the world's best-known behavioural science researchers, has been exposed for data fraud. In today's emergency episode, an episode I wasn't planning on publishing, I'll cover what happened, what this means for the industry, how it affects marketers, and the future of this show. All of that coming up after this short break. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, welcome to today's emergency episode of Nudge. As always, I'm your host, Phil Agnew. Now let's get right into it. Today, we're going to cover the news that one of Harvard's top professors and one of the most famous behavioral science researchers has been exposed for data fraud. Francesca Gino, the author of Rebel Talent and Sidetracked, has been accused of manipulating data in four of her studies. This manipulation of data wasn't a small thing. It substantially changed the outcome of each of her experiments. Today, I've invited Pete Judo on the show. He runs the Pete Judo YouTube channel that covers all things behavioral science, including a brilliant video on this very topic. Here he is introducing himself. So my name's Pete Judo. I run a YouTube channel where I talk about behavioral science. I'm somebody who works in the behavioral science industry. I worked as a behavioral science consultant for two years. Now I work as a senior auditor of behavioral risk at NatWest Bank. To kick off, I asked Pete to give me some background into this scandal. So Francesca Gino was a very high profile professor at Harvard University. As expected from someone at Harvard University, she was extremely well-known in the industry. Her papers have been circulating for over a decade at this point. And she's very famous because her papers have very, I would describe them as wacky hypotheses. So she's investigating things that are surprising. And because she investigates things that are surprising, and yet her hypotheses always seem to be proven right in her testing, that's given her a lot of public attention, a lot of uh, public profile. And that's a large reason why she was able to cement her position at Harvard University. So what's happened in the last few weeks was that three guys called Yuri, Joe and Leif, they're three professors from other universities around the world. They run this blog called Data Collada. They've been running it for a few years now. And the mission of Data Collada is to investigate cases of fraud within the behavioral science industry and basically work as a, as a force to improve academic practices amongst behavioral scientists. As part of their latest series, they were investigating the work of Francesca Gino. And the reason why they were suspicious of her was, again, because her hypotheses were so wild, so out of the ordinary, but her effect sizes were always really large. So through various means, they managed to acquire the data sets from from four different studies of hers. And when they looked into the raw data and tried to see Uh, if there was anything suspicious going on, they ended up finding some very suspicious entries. 
These three researchers found suspicious data manipulation on four separate papers from Francesca Gino. And the suspicious data, it isn't minor inaccuracies or small details. No, this is major manipulation. It changes the results of her studies. So let's dive into the first study, the first study that's disputed. So this this first study was published in 2012. It was written by five very well-known authors, uh, including Dan Ariely, who is one of the most famous people in the field of behavioral science. And the purpose of this paper was to investigate the idea that when people fill out a form, you can get them to be more honest if you put an honesty pledge at the top of a form. And so in this paper, I think there were four studies in total within the paper, but each study was kind of looking at the same thing. And the idea was that if you put an honesty pledge at the top of a form, people will be more honest than if you put an honesty pledge at the bottom of the form. And so all of the studies had that kind of research design. This first study was led by Francesca Gino. And the way that the study worked was that students were brought into a lab and they were asked to complete some math puzzles. They're quite simple math puzzles, but they only have five minutes to do them. And they get paid a dollar for each one that they get correct. But the way that the study worked, like the actual design of what happened to the students was very specific. So when they came into the room, they had two pieces of paper on the desk. One was a work paper where they wrote their workings and their answers. And then another was like this report paper. So the participants are given two pieces of paper the answer sheet to fill out the answers to the questions and the reporting sheet to report how many questions they got right. Now, it's the reporting sheet that had the experiment variant. Half the students received a reporting sheet with the honesty pledge at the top. The other half received a reporting sheet with the honesty pledge at the bottom. That was the variant. All students had to sign the honesty pledge, declaring that they'd be truthful. Gino and her colleagues were experimenting to see if placing the pledge at the top would make students more honest. And what they were hoping to see was that the students who had one at the top of the report paper would report more accurately, would report less uh, results in general, and therefore be cheating less, whereas the ones who had it at the bottom would cheat more. And the reason why they were able to tell how much students were cheating is because after the students had completed the math questions, they were then told to uh, shred their work paper at the back of the room and then hand in the report paper to get paid. But what they didn't know was that the shredder at the back of the room was actually rigged. And it was rigged in the way that it would only shred the sides of the page, but actually keep the main body of the page intact. And so because of that, the researchers could go back into the room after the student had left take their work paper out of the shredder and see how many answers they actually got correct and therefore were able to tell how much that student had cheated and therefore how much they had overreported and how much they got overpaid. It sounds like a pretty cool test and you can picture how moving the honesty pledge to the top could perhaps make people more honest. Perhaps after they sign it immediately they might think about honesty so perhaps cheat a little less. But the results, the findings, were gobsmacking. Francesca Gino didn't uncover a small shift in honesty. She claimed to see a dramatic change. So the effect size they found was very large. When the honesty pledge was at the top of the form, they found that only 37% of students uh, cheated, whereas when the honesty pledge was at the bottom of the form, 79% of students cheated. Right. So it's a huge effect, a massive effect just from moving this honesty pledge from the top to the bottom. And in terms of statistical significance, they had a statistical significance of P less than 0.001. 
which for anyone who hasn't had statistical training in academia before, the standard that academics tend to use is P less than 0.05. That means that your study is statistically significant, that this effect that you're seeing is caused by the manipulation that you did. So less than 0.00001 is an extremely strong effect size. It's basically saying that you're you're 100% sure that what you're seeing in the effect was caused by what you did. Because this was such a big effect size with such a strong statistical significance, the authors of Data Collada were very suspicious of this study. When the authors of Data Collada looked into the raw data set, they found a few things that were uh, suspicious in the data. And the main thing that they were looking at in this case was the participant ID. So when you do a psychological experiment, you assign each participant a unique ID. It helps with your data processing, but because, because the ID is unique, that means that there should be no duplicates in this column. Right? So the first red flag that they found was that there were a few duplicates in the column, where it seems to be that participant 49, it was in the data set twice, for example, right? and that's the red flag. Other things they found that were suspicious was that the way that the data was sorted suggested that it should be in ascending order, so from smallest to largest going down. But there was a few rows in this data set that were out of order. And so the ones that were out of order are authors of data collada treated as suspicious. And what they were looking for with this suspicious data is, are the suspicious rows showing a stronger effect than the unsuspicious rows? Because if they are showing a stronger effect, that suggests some manipulation on the part of the authors of the study in order to try and prove their hypothesis correct or in order to show a bigger effect than was actually real. And basically what they found in their analysis was that those suspicious rows had the most extreme effect of all the data. To sum up, the three data collada researchers focused on the data that looked suspicious, the data from participants with duplicant IDs or the ones that weren't in ascending order, like the rest. And it turns out that all of those supposed participants showed an extreme reaction to the experiment. Those in the honesty primed group were the most honest, and those in the control group were the least honest. So these supposed participants, they dramatically inflated the result, changing the outcome and proving the researcher's hypothesis. Remove them and you don't see the same results. So you might wonder, why would a Harvard professor do this? Why would they lie? Isn't the whole point of science to showcase and celebrate failures? Well, yes, this is true, but it's not how researchers like Gino are incentivized. For Gino to become noteworthy, to become a best-selling author, she needs to find surprising results. To get published in main journals, she needs to find surprising results. And for Gino to keep her position at Harvard, she needs exciting new research with surprising results. Obviously, she shouldn't have manipulated the data. She should not have changed the results. But you can see how she is incentivized for doing so. And it appears that is what she did, blatantly tampering with the data to get a surprising result. A result that suggested people will be two times more honest simply by signing an honesty pledge at the top of a form. A result that appears to be entirely bogus. But unfortunately, it is not the only bogus paper that Gino has authored. The second contains an even more surprising claim. This next study was conducted in 2015 along with uh, Kuchaki and Galinsky. Galinsky is super famous in the field of behavioral science as well. I think his TED talk has like millions of views. In this study, they were looking at this idea that if you're forced to argue against what you actually believe in, that makes you feel dirty. And therefore, you find cleansing products like soap more appealing afterwards. 
like I said, Francesco Gino is known for, for having really wacky hypotheses. This is one of them. And it's, you know, to me, as someone who's trained in psychology for like many years and worked in the industry, like this makes hardly any sense. Like it seems like a really weak uh, hypothesis to have. But nevertheless, like this is what they're researching, right? So the way the study worked was that students were brought uh, into the lab and they were asked to write an essay about something called the Q Guide. Uh, apparently it's a very hot topic at Harvard University, but people outside of Harvard don't really know what it means. But basically, some people at Harvard are for the Q Guide, some people at Harvard are against the Q Guide. And when they were brought into the lab, they were first asked, how do you feel about the Q Guide? Are you for or against it? And then half the participants were asked to write an essay supporting what they just said. So if they said they were for the Q Guide, they had to write an essay saying they were for the Q Guide. Um, and then half the participants were asked to write against what they just said. So if they said, I'm for the Q Guide, they had to write an essay saying why they should be against the Q Guide. And then after they wrote this essay, they were then shown uh, a series of cleansing products and then asked to rate how appealing they found them on a, on a scale between uh, completely undesirable to completely desirable, the seven point scale. So just to summarize, here's the hypothesis. If you are forced to argue against something you believe in, you'll feel dirty and because you feel dirty, cleaning products will become more desirable. So let's give an example. Say you study at Harvard and you love the Q Guide. You'd be brought in, asked to write an essay explaining why the Q Guide is bad. And then supposedly you will feel dirty and you'll rate cleaning products, like a bar of soap, as more desirable. <laughs> it sounds like absolute rubbish to me. And it turns out it was. Again, the uh, results they found were very surprising, that it supported the hypothesis they had, that if you argue against what you believe in, that you find cleansing products more desirable. And the statistical significance was very strong. It's P less than 0.0001. Again, academics look for less than 0.05, so this is super strong statistical significance. So the authors of Data Collada look into Gino's data set and they're looking at the answers to some of the demographic questions that participants were asked when they entered the study, which is a common practice in psychology to get asked a few of these demographic questions like, what's your age? What's your gender? Uh, but one of the questions that they were asked was, what year in school are you? And I make this point in my video that it's quite a poorly phrased question because it's very open-ended what the correct answer to that is. You might say something like, I'm a senior or I'm a sophomore. You might say 2015 or 2016, like the year of your graduation. Or you might say a single number, like one, two, three, four, or five, depending on how many years in school you've been. All of those are like acceptable answers to that question, what year in school are you? But what they found when they looked into the column was that there were 20 rows where the answer to that question was Harvard. And that doesn't make any sense, right? What year in school are you? Harvard. Now, you might think that one or two people might have written Harvard, but the data showed that 20 supposed participants all answered with that strange answer, saying Harvard. Not Harvard Uni, not Harvard University, not University of Harvard, just Harvard. None of the answers contained lowercase letters like a lowercase h, or none of them contained a full stop. All just wrote Harvard with a capital H. This looks pretty fishy. Uh, and it's also suspicious because these 20 Harvard uh, entries are within 35 rows of each other out of a data set of 500 rows. So like, it's weird that they're grouped together so closely. 
So again, our, our vigilantes uh, treat these Harvard rows as suspicious, and they are trying to see again whether these suspicious rows are showing a stronger effect uh, to to make the effect size seem stronger uh, and make the statistical significance stronger than it really is. And that's exactly what they found. Uh, if you look at the graph in the article, it's like egregious how obvious it is. It's like so extreme. It's not even trying to be <laughs> subtle. And when you it's especially egregious when you look at the students who argued the other side. These are the students who said they were for the Q guide, wrote an essay uh, arguing against the Q guide, and then were asked how appealing do you find the cleansing products? And for those suspicious students, they all said they found every product completely appealing, right? Like as appealing as it could be. It's like so obvious that, you know, these are extreme observations inflating the effect size. And what the authors say in the, in the article is that it's quite likely that these aren't the only fabricated pieces of data in the data set. These are just the ones that look suspicious because of the Harvard thing. But like, it's it's quite likely that there's other stuff in this data set where the people fabricating the data, probably Gino, were more careful when they filled out that column. And so, yeah, you basically can't trust this result at all. When you remove these suspicious entries from the data, the supposed result disappears. Without these 20 entries, it certainly doesn't look like those who argue against something feel dirty and thus want cleaning products. So it appears pretty conclusive that this paper has also been manipulated. But unfortunately, these are just two of Gino's papers with disputed results. There are two more that we'll cover after this quick break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show. And now we are going to cover the third disputed paper by the three researchers at Data Collada. This paper by Francesca Gino and Scott Wiltemuth is ironically called Evil Genius, How Dishonesty Can Lead to Greater Creativity. The researchers propose that dishonesty and creative behaviour are linked. The more dishonest you are, the more creative you'll be. Well, Francesca Gino might well be right, but perhaps not in the way she'd hoped. So in this experiment, participants are shown a computer with a virtual coin-flipping app. The participants are asked to predict if the next coin toss will land on heads or tails. After making their prediction, they'd push a button to flip the coin, and if they'd predicted correctly, they'd win a dollar. So each time you correctly predict a coin toss, you win a dollar. Now the participants were not being watched by the researchers, so to claim their reward, they would write down how many times they predicted the coin flipped correctly, 
take their answer sheet to the researcher and get paid. This creates the chance for cheating because they're not being directly monitored. However, the researchers could actually go back to the machine and see if the participant was, was being accurate, if they were lying or not. So the researchers did discover some people who lied, claiming that they predicted more than they actually did. The researchers also discovered many more honest people who accurately reported their results. Next up, in the second experiment with the same participants, all these participants were given a creativity task. They were asked to think of as many different uses for a newspaper as possible. For example, you could read the newspaper, but you could also turn it into a paper aeroplane, wrap your fish and chips in it. All of that is creative ways of using a newspaper. Here's where Gino claimed to find something surprising. She claimed that the dishonest participants, the ones who had lied about the coin tosses, well, they came up with more uses for the newspaper. She claimed they were more creative. That was the conclusion from this paper, that dishonest people were more creative. And this paper was pretty popular and it was cited in many, many news articles. And yet, it appears to be entirely made up. What our authors of Data Collada found was that when they looked at the data set, it seemed to be sorted by two things. So firstly, how many times the participant cheated. So all the participants who didn't cheat were lumped together, all the participants who cheated once were lumped together. And then secondly, in ascending order of the number of uses for a newspaper they could think of. So it should get larger as it goes down. And again, when they look into the data, they find that stuff is out of order. And so for the people in the study who cheated once, they found that there were several entries where you know the, the number of responses to the newspaper was way higher than it should be given the row that it seems to be in the set. And so again, they treat that data as suspicious and then plotted it. And when you see the plot, you can see that it's only the suspicious entries that are showing any effect, basically, that are showing anything different to, to the non-cheaters, to the people who didn't cheat at all. When you remove the suspicious data from the results, the statistical significance from this study, it disappears. Without this altered data, it would not have been published. The hypothesis would have failed. The theme is pretty consistent here. Gino seems to come up with a surprising hypothesis, run an experiment to attempt to prove it, and then alter her results until the results show what she wants. This isn't just the case with these three papers, it's the case with one final paper. Now this final paper is on how mindset affects networking. Again, this is a study with another really quite wacky hypothesis. It suggests that putting someone into a promotion mindset, this is what they call a promotion mindset, will help them enjoy networking more. <laughs> it sounds a bit like hypnotism, you know, sort of change your mindset and you'll love that dreaded business networking. So to uncover this hypothesis, the researchers put participants into promotion mindset groups, prevention mindset groups, or no mindset groups. Well, you might be thinking, how on earth do you put someone into that sort of mindset? Well, the researchers stated they did this by assigning participants a writing task. Those in the promotion condition wrote about a hope or an aspiration. So you write about a hope or an aspiration and you'll, you'll put into this promotion mindset. Those in a prevention condition wrote about a duty or an obligation. And those in the control group wrote about normal everyday activities. Now, again, this study raised eyebrows. You wouldn't expect a small writing task to dramatically change how people enjoyed networking. Yet the researchers claimed another huge statistical significance, a P.000001. 
this seems fishy, and Data Collada investigated. And what they found was pretty shocking. See, participants rated their enjoyment of networking on a seven-point scale. One being that they loved it, seven being that they hated it. In addition to this, the participants also said a few words about their experience. So those that loved networking wrote words like comfortable, accepted, excelling, teamwork. Those who hate it, people like me, they wrote stuff like annoying, disgusting, slimy, words like that. All of this makes sense, but not all of the words looked right. Data Collada found, again, that in some of the most extreme results, the people who really loved or really hated networking, according to their point scale, gave very different words to their scores. These suspicious entries came from people who gave a rating of seven, which meant that they absolutely hated networking, yet their words said, I was thinking it was great, or it feels welcoming, lucky, and friendly. Data Collada found 18 entries like this, and they marked them as suspicious. 18 entries where the words did not match their rating. It looked like the researchers may have tweaked the scores of these entries, but had actually forgotten to change the words associated with the entry. Now, like with all the previous studies, Data Collada reanalyzed the results without these suspicious entries and found that the researchers' original results did not hold. The researchers seemed to have faked the ratings, but not the words. The effect should go away when you analyse just the words, and it does go away. What's more, Data Collada also received confirmation from Harvard that this data set had been tampered. Now all of this seems pretty conclusive, right? Four different studies from Francesca Gino and evidence of fabricated data in each. But is there any chance that we're all wrong? Is there any chance that this data is genuine? I asked Pete. There's of course a chance that their analysis is wrong, um, but I don't think so, given the fact that Harvard, who have more access to Gino's data than those guys do, have decided to retract Gino's papers. And so that suggests that they've done, basically that that, their research has been corroborated by Harvard. And so I don't think there's anything wrong. Those guys are really smart. They're like experts in this kind of thing in, in, breaking down data. So as long as their data is reliable, I don't think their analysis is wrong. So this looks conclusive. These papers were bogus. The results were fabricated and all of Gino's work should be treated with scepticism. But I wondered if the problem is even wider than this solo researcher. Could it be that whole principles within behavioral science are based on lies? I asked Pete. Yeah, there's a a lot. Um, So unfortunately (laughs) for us, Priming is the most egregious one. Like Again, I just don't think we should use the word at all. Just find something else that is more specific. Another one is ego depletion. So this is this wasn't studied by Francesca Gino, but it's just another thing that has been under a lot of fire in behavioral science. So ego depletion is the idea that you start off the day with like a lot of decision-making energy. And then as you make decisions throughout the day, that gets worn down and therefore throughout the towards the end of the day you're less able to make rational decisions that's kind of the idea Uh, and then like the real interesting bit of this research was the suggestion that you could replenish your ego depletion by drinking a sugary drink or drinking some sugar because basically sugar in your blood is the is the force that gives you like good decision making rational power it's been like largely disproven like any any like sizable study that's looked into it 
where this where the participant is doesn't know about ego depletion like all of those studies kind of show that there's no strong effect there so i'm very suspicious about any kind of ego depletion work and then like anything from amy cuddy is also suspicious so amy cuddy is like a ted talk superstar she's the power posing lady so like power posing has been disproven uh pretty comprehensively at this point even amy cuddy doesn't believe in power posing anymore and then unfortunately a lot of work from Dan Ariely as well so Ariely one of the most famous people in the field he had an article written about him on data collada like two years ago and it showed it was actually the same paper as the first one from <laughs> from from these Francesca Gino series so it's this it's again investigating the idea of this honesty pledge at the top versus the bottom of the page and it was kind of shown that something suspicious in the data uh, in that one for the study that Ariely led as well. The evidence isn't as damning as it is for Gino. Like it isn't as blatantly obvious in the cheating, but it still doesn't look good. Now you might be thinking, Phil, how many of these studies have you mentioned on Nudge? Well, let's walk through them, starting with ego depletion. Ego depletion was something I referred to on the first episode I did on Elizabeth Holmes. Now, I didn't refer to the sugary drink study, but I did refer to another Dan Ariely study on ego depletion that showed how people were more likely to cheat after doing a tiring task. In the study, participants who had to write an essay without using the letters A and E, a very difficult task, were more likely to cheat on a test than other participants who had to write a similar essay, but this time without using the letters X and Y, a much easier task. So this study on ego depletion, it's probably worth ignoring. So if you do go back and listen to that episode, keep that in mind. Amy Cuddy, the other person Pete referenced. Now that's not somebody I've covered on Nudge before, so I won't cover her. And then Dan Ariely. Now I regularly mention Dan on Nudge. I've tried to get him on the show before, but with these developments, I will try and, and refrain from including his studies on future episodes. And I'll at least wait to hear how Gino defends that initial honesty pledge study with Ariely before I change my mind. One more thing, those two episodes I did on Elizabeth Holmes a few weeks back, I'd suggest you listen to those with, with a definite pinch of salt. Many of the studies I used in those episodes came from Dan Ariely's book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And frankly, it looks like we should really ignore a lot of the findings from those books, seeing as most of the studies in that book use the same experiment design as that honesty pledge study, so perhaps should be treated with scepticism. But what about the future of behavioural science? Will this change the industry? Will this make my podcast irrelevant? I asked Pete. If Francesca Gina was an isolated case, you might say, oh, it's just an isolated case. Like the rest of the the rest of the field is rock solid. But that's just not the history of behavioral science, right? Like there's been a huge amount of replication problems. I talked about some of them today with priming and other things. Brian Wanzink is another high profile example that happened like quite a few years ago now. And it's particularly sad that Gino is the one who's who's fallen here because these articles weren't written that long ago. Like it used to be like with the priming stuff in Kahneman's book, it was like, okay, like this stuff is not great, but this was psychology done like pre the year 2000. Like it's a different time, different era for psychological research. We're much more robust now, much more data-driven now. We have R now, like, you know, <laughs> things are like a lot more solid, but like, here we are, you know, Francesca Gino, recent research being shown to be false as well. So to be honest, it is bad. It's a very bad look. On the other hand, I've seen a monumental effort from other researchers like Katie Milkman and her collaborators to really uphold the field in in spite of this unfortunate situation and using it as 
impetus for the industry to become more robust, to have better checks and controls when it comes to publishing data to make sure it is robust. So in that way, it's kind of like a painful lesson that might turn into a positive for the field in the long run. So let's summarize the facts. Evidence has come out which questions the validity of not one, but four papers from the famed Harvard researcher Francesca Gino. Not only does this evidence suggest that Gino's conclusions were wrong, it actually suggests that she manipulated the data to reach her radical hypothesis. All of this is awful, and it's really frustrating for someone like me who relies on these researchers to share reputable knowledge. But all of that considered, here's my take on these findings. Now, my take is that this scandal shouldn't make all of us doubt behavioural science. You're bound to get some bad apples out of a field of thousands. And frankly, the studies that have been questioned haven't exactly changed the world. Other than the Honesty Pledge study, I hadn't heard of any of these before. And the reason I think I haven't heard of them is because they, they weren't really replicated by anyone else and they weren't proven to work. And so thus, they aren't widely shared. I see this scandal not as a real chance to question behavioural science, but simply as a time waster. For practitioners, like me, who actually apply these principles, this has just slowed us down. Perhaps we attempted an honesty pledge test and it didn't work. No problem, we'll just try something else. This is where I sit. Fundamentally, in marketing and business, we'll run tests and we'll only stick with the strategies and tactics that work. The reason behavioural science has become so successful is because the vast majority of these principles do work. These bogus studies, they just wasted our time, forcing us to test something that we should have never been bothered with. Obviously, the field should do everything it can to stop data manipulation like this ever happening again, and the folks at Data Collada should be praised for their research and definitely continue doing it. But hopefully, your confidence in behavioural science isn't shattered. There are thousands of peer-reviewed studies in the field, hundreds of principles to apply, and it seems like there are just a few bad apples in the bunch. Oh, and next time a professor shares some surprising studies about the psychology of dishonesty, maybe check how honest they are first. Okay, that is all for today, folks. I want to say a massive thank you to Pete for coming on. Pete is someone who I've wanted to have on the show for ages. His YouTube channel, Pete Judo, is easily the best behavioral science YouTube channel I have found, and his video on the scandal is fantastic. I'd highly recommend going to check out Pete's channel. You can watch his video on this scandal, or perhaps his video on the five behavioral science principles every beginner should know. That's a cracking show. I've dropped a link to both of those in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find four links to the four Data Collado articles. Definitely go and check those out to read more about this scandal. And let's face it, this story is going to keep developing. Francisco Gino has, has posted on LinkedIn to talk about these claims, and she said some sort of mysterious things. She said, as I continue to evaluate these allegations and assess my options, I am limited into what I can say publicly. There will be more to come on all of this. In fact, just last Friday, Francesca Gino gave an update on her LinkedIn profile. I'm actually going to read the, the update in full because I think it's, well, it's the most up-to-date information on the scandal. So Francesca writes, I want to be very clear. 
I have never ever falsified data or engaged in research misconduct of any kind. Today, I had no choice but to file a lawsuit against Harvard University and members of the Data Collada group who worked together to destroy my career and reputation, despite admitting they have no evidence of proving their allegations. While claiming to stand for process excellence, they reached outrageous conclusions based entirely on inference, assumption, and implausible leaps of logic. They created a false narrative about my ethics and integrity, which has had a devastating impact on my friends, colleagues, collaborators, and most of all, my family. I stayed quiet to try and focus my efforts on meaningfully defending myself and my career. And and that's where it ends there. So this story is obviously developing. There's clearly lots more that needs to come out. And if you are listening to this episode in the future, I would suggest looking up this scandal because it might be that more information has come out. If you want to keep up to speed with this story, do follow me on LinkedIn. I'm Phil Agnew on there. And subscribe to my newsletter to get weekly behavioral science tips and updates on this scandal. To do so, just head to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu. One more thing before I go, a word of warning, Richard Shotton and I have recorded a whole episode on Francesca Gino and her studies on the Red Sneakers effect. Now, none of the studies we covered on that show have been questioned yet, but I'm not sure what to do. Should I publish? Should I not? Send me an email and let me know. If I do publish that episode, I'll definitely put a disclaimer at the start so you're all aware. All right, that is all for this emergency podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. I will see you next week for another episode of Nudge.